Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at it on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Well, guys, we have some exciting news for you from Vortex about their brand new eyewear, their Banshee and Jackal sunglasses. Me and Andrew have had these for a few weeks now, right before the release, and we've been extremely impressed. They're awesome glasses, guys. And listen, if you're needing some new sunglasses, not only do they have the VIP warranty, but they're tough as crap, guys. Uh, Scratch-resistant eyewear, uh, it's extremely important. And also, they have safety features as well. So when you're out shooting at the range, again, these are rated glasses, so you are going to be more than protected when you're at the range. But they also look fantastic when you're out around town. So right now, Vortex has some special pricing on their website, which is vortexoptics.com for the new eye wear but also if you use the code southern20 you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at vortexoptics.com again check out the new eyewear from vortexoptics.com and use the promo code southern20 to save on their brand new eyewear another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Make sure you like and subscribe to the podcast. You can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the Southern Outdoorsman. Now let's get to the episode. Presented by Hunting Exchange, a marketplace for serious hunters by serious hunters. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Today we have a legend on, Mr. Warren Womack. Warren, how are you doing? Doing fine. Thank you for having me. Yeah, glad to have you. Thank you for coming on, Jacob. How are you? Oh, man, I'm excited. Doing well. Hey, had a great hunt today. You know, had some awesome action, which we'll talk about potentially in this outro, maybe next week. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. And then, uh, Michael, what's up with you, bud? 
Oh, nothing much. Just enjoy my Laffy Taffy's and my Apollos over here. Yeah, I'm giving it, giving Mike a hard time before we started recording. He's grown man's eating some Laffy Taffy, banana Laffy Taffy of all. Ugh. Yeah, that's what I grew up. My God. parents always got them. God bless. So, God, God bless you. <laughs> Just carried on. Let's get back to this episode, man. We got, we got we got Warren on here. Warren, extremely excited to have this conversation with you and have you on the podcast. I'll say this has been a few years in the making. I think the first time I ever talked to you about potentially coming on the podcast was, I think, spring of 2018. We had just started the podcast. I think you and me jumped on a phone call while I was down in Miami um, for on a work call slash Osceola turkey hunt <laughs> and uh anyways we just i guess we never made it really happen and finally a couple years later we're finally here having the conversation with you which we're very excited about and i'll say this you know a lot of our listeners probably know about you but uh one thing special about you warren is i'm going to say this you're, you're definitely a legend when it comes to uh southern deer hunters but also just deer hunters in general i think a lot of people look up to you and your perspective of you know still getting after it you know at your age uh which i think you talked earlier about being 77 and uh you know still kind of you know getting after it uh, but Warren, to kind of kick us off, a topic at hand that I really want to discuss in this podcast is uh, the the topic of outstanding sign. You know, a lot of people know about you for, you know, your approach on hunting feed trees and how successful you've done with that. Uh, but something that you and me have brought up, or really you brought up to me uh, on a phone call a few months ago was, you know, there's more to it than just feed trees and understanding, you know, a full a range of sign and understanding outstanding sign and how that can play a factor in how you go in and uh, may hunt an area. Uh, so Warren, to maybe kind of kick us off, can you give us just an idea? Of what do you describe as outstanding sign uh, for the listeners? You got sign, and then you got sign that takes your breath away. I'm looking for the sign that takes my breath away and makes me want to climb on it and set up on it and be ready for a deer to come in. But but uh, I like to I like to do a lot of scouting, and, and you know I'm speaking of this when I was in my prime. I'm too old to do what I used to do, even though I still want to. <laughs> but uh. Anyway, I, I, I do a lot of in-season daily scouting. That's been my secret. Anybody want to know my secret is spend as much time as you can in the woods looking for that perfect place, recognizing it when you're seeing it and setting up on it. And you've got, you got different degrees of sign. It's just like scoring anything on a 1 to 10. You know, when you, you're looking for number 10 uh, sign, you don't want to hunt number 5 or number 6. or You don't want to climb and hope you see a deer. You want to climb and expect to see a deer. And that's that's the, the top degree of the the uh, potential sign that you want to set up on, and I find that just by searching, you know. And the deer only makes so much sign. He makes tracks, which creates trails. He's got creek crossings, which you can see where he's going up and down the banks. He's got feeding sign where they're in uh, feed trees, you know, mass or or uh, fruit trees or whatever, like persimmons or what have you. And the more time they spend on a tree, the more sign develops. And you can look inside the drip line of the tree and, and outside the drip line and where, where the mass is not falling. And it's, it's undisturbed on the outside of that drip line. And it's extremely disturbed with, with droppings and everything, bu- busted hulls from makers and everything. It's just, it really shows up. And I'm looking for a rating of a number 10 sign and when i find it it, it it it'll actually take your breath away from you you get so excited about it and uh, a lot of times i've had my stand on my back and my climbing method with me while i'm searching and looking and once i find it i climb on it immediately with no going back to the truck to get anything just sit there ready got, got with me everything i need to find what i'm looking for set up on it right take advantage of my, my shot opportunity and without any outside help 
find a deer and quarter him up and pack him out. And that's a perfect hunt. All right, so Warren, that was a really good, I think, breakdown of you know your approach with outstanding sign. Now, I've got a lot of questions on this, um, but one I want to kind of touch on is what does that outstanding sign? You mentioned you know some of the feed tree aspects and the food source aspects of outstanding sign, but what other types of outstanding sign will play a factor depending on the time of year that you're out there with in season scouting, truly trying to you know find the most hot sign possible to set up on well it's, it's uh it's just what i said it's just outstanding sign in other words it, signs are not always equal and the more you got the the better your chances are of setting up right for it so uh, just scout i'm scouting for looking for feed trees and acorns but if i see something else like a like a, a trail heavy trail or a funnel area or something like that and the wind's right for it and the the movement is right for coming from a bedding area to a feeding area or vice versa, depending on it's morning or evening. You take advantage of it. That's an outstanding sign. And, and probably one question that would just, you know, really needs to be asked, and it sounds simple enough, but what to you makes some sign outstanding? Like, I mean, it's got to be that aha moment, but to try to put that into words for listeners, what to you gets you excited when it comes to outstanding sign? Well, just take it if it's a feed tree. You're looking for that feed tree. If you don't look at maybe 300 on a, on a long walk. I used to walk two to four hours every, every day looking for that perfect tree. And you're going to see a lot of trees that you want to make yourself hunt it. But if it's really outstanding sign, it's going to make you hunt it. You can't walk away from it. And it's going to be the, the degree of intensity shown on the tree. In other words, you, your ground on the side of that drip line is going to be tore up, like I mentioned. You're going to have possibly have coons and squirrels feeding in a tree you're gonna have acorns dropping it at a continuous rate you're gonna have a, a just as i call it a, a really active tree with a lot of wildlife taking advantage of the, the tree in its absolute prime well that's an outstanding sign it's going to create and you're going to recognize it too after looking at all those trees it didn't look like that so when it comes to feed signs so that's kind of what the feed sign uh looks like when it comes to outstanding sign but what about other kinds of deer sign, whether it be just tracks or rubs or scrapes or any of the other stuff, how does that factor in? Well, you know, that you could have a combination of two or three different kinds of signs at the same place. And the more more different sign you got, the, the more it creates your desire to hunt and the, the bigger percentage you have of making good on a shot. I've got a, a quick question. Um, do you notice like some of those early uh, scrapes and rubs uh, being actually under those feed trees? like in the early season yes they will be they sure do and you you know you won't find many of them on there you know early early season october like that but you will see what it, and it's mostly little rubs little saplings and stuff like that little bushes and stuff they, they while they're picking up those acres and everything they're gonna thrash around on them a little bit so is that something like you know when you i guess we're walking out through the woods like to somebody who's new or green you know, some of that sign, as far as the feed sign, it may not, I guess, be as apparent, but everybody, or I assume like most people, most hunters know what a rub looks like and what a scrape looks like. Could you feasibly go out looking for that sign and then, you know, kind of look for that feed sign once you notice that kind of sign? Yeah, you could possibly notice a, a rub, you know, before you notice the tree was in its prime. That would be possible. Like I say, you're just you're scouting. You're looking everything over. You, you're just scouting with open mind and taking advantage of the best sign you can find at that time. Now, it, the next day you hunt, you might find something better than that. Well, that's that's even better that you find something better. But uh, it, it's just it's just 
got to put. I can't stress enough how much walking and, and time you got to spend. And and you know, just you got to just keep looking. It's it's days. I used to go on four day hunts, and the first, first I'd get there ready at daylight the first day, and I I might walk till one o'clock that afternoon, and I might find four different places to hunt that I think's a, a high percentage hunt. And then I'll go back that evening and hunt one I think's best for for the evening and with the wind condition and where I think the deer are coming from, and uh, and just make judgment calls like that. If I don't see anything that evening, I might go back and hunt it the next morning for two hours and then get down and start all over again looking for something better. You're always looking for the best opportunity you can find. And sign, the accumulated sign is going to give you that. It's going to show it to you. Warren, what do you describe an area or setup as being a high percentage uh, hunt or setup? That's something you just mentioned is, you know, you're trying to find, you know, high percentage, high odds setups. What, what would that consist of? Well, the sign. <laughs> the, the area that's giving you the most sign, the most disturbance, the, the best acres falling or, or whatever, or hot creek crossing or whatever. You just, I mean, you your hunts are important, and you don't want to just climb and hope a deer comes by there, which a lot of people do. In fact, I do that a lot myself these days, but I don't have, hunt the big acreages like this. And, and what I'm talking this stuff here is when you got large public lands I used to hunt and everything. I had so much room to run. I might make a hunt one morning, and that afternoon I might be six miles or seven miles from there in, in another area of hunting. It's just you can you can do that with large, large acreage properties but a small place you can't do that you'll run them off doing that now i've got a question i guess something that i'm curious about and that is you know to me like some of those feed trees is a little bit easier i guess to find earlier in the season but like once the season actually progresses what what are you what does your attention shift to i mean they could be more like on just browse so like you know how how does that transition occur for you from I guess the feed trees to looking at other sign for other you know times of the year but well, I've been able to kill deer in every month of the season with on acorns feed trees and stuff I mean you you have water oaks come in early and then your red oaks and then you your white oak family your cow oaks and your pure white oaks come in and then you got nut alls I've hunted over nut alls and killed deer in October and some places and in January I've hunted and killed deer over them so, you know, you just, it's always, that's always the food source you're going to get to. I, I don't kill many deer on browse. It's so iffy. they got browse everywhere you go. It's hard, unless you find a spot that's, that there's something they're really after, like in a, a dry lake bed or something. that has got a lot of, a lot of browse in it and they hit it. Something like that might be good, but just general browse, it's all over the woods. It's, that's low percentage hunting in my book. I want something that they got to come to. They want to come to it. And they, you pinpoint them like that. You walk, when you see them coming, they look like they're on a string coming straight to you. But you can't do that on browse. Trails trails are good, but they're iffy. You know, if you get on this trail, they might come on that other trail over there 30 yards from you. You know, most trails that I had association with was in agricultural land where you got these big soybean fields or corn fields or something like that. You might have, in a 200-yard stretch, you might have 35 trails coming out of the woods going to that field, you know. It's just a guessing game. But when you're hunting a food source, a pinpoint food source, you're waiting on him. He's coming. So, Warren, I've got to ask this. When it comes to outstanding sign, how does deer density and, and herd size play a factor to what that sign may look like? Oh, it's huge, yeah. The more deer, the more, more tracks, 
more disturbance. You know, it, it's it's hard when you got a small property and you know just have a few deer. It's hard to pinpoint where they at. But like like you you mentioned, you know, uh, a heavy a good sized herd of deer in the area and everything, and, and they all like the same preferred food source, so they're gonna go from one to the other. And it's a lot of, a lot of stuff on on hunting feed trees that how one will replace another one. The deer selects the primary feed tree. Uh, and they do it because it's the very best sign. They, they picky about what they eat. When you don't have many, say, acorns, they, they'll eat most of, just about anything. But once once you get more acorns, you know, they get real selective on what they want to eat. They want to eat the very best. Now, how long will this primary food uh, food source last? It depends on how long the, the deer feed on it before they find something that's better, and then they're going to shift over and go to the better. That's why you got to keep searching. you got to keep scouting. The deer... They move, they change their food sources, and you got to you got to stay with them. You got to keep up with them. So deer density and herd size plays a huge factor. And I think one question probably some people are wondering is, of course, you know this would make sense in areas with high deer numbers. You know, it's going to be so much easier to find some of that sign. But in areas where you have lower deer numbers and just maybe the population size is not really there, you know, the deer density is, is not that high. Can you talk about, like, I'm sure you've hunted areas like that before and, and still hunted, you know, feed sign. What does that feed sign look like in areas just with, I mean, very little deer? Or again, just not, it doesn't have the herd size of some area that maybe has agriculture or there's an area like a, a really high production river bottom or something like that that has there's a huge herd. So, I mean, what does that sign look like in areas with very limited deer? And how do you have to, you know, you know, distinguish between that and not getting, I guess, your hopes up of, you know, that completely tilled out tree because there's 25 deer feeding underneath it every night? Well, it'll still show up, but not to the... Uh the density and the, the, as well as what it does when you got a lot of deer. And it just makes sense that a lot of deer is going to cause more disturbance than a few deer will, but there will still be disturbance there. You'll still see signs. They've just got to look a little closer and not expect as much as you expect when you're on a higher density area. And this is all my opinion, too. You know, it's no 100% exactly like this on everywhere you go and everything you do. You know, it's, it's it's various. You just gotta. I tell people, you just gotta work at this real hard. You can't. You can't. You know, if the more you put into it, the more you can expect to get out of it. You know, it, it's work in progress. And that's where this in-season scouting really plays a huge factor. Is again, you know, in-season scouting is something that can put you in the right position at the right time. And we talked about this actually quite recently. I think it was one of the outros talking about like in-season scouting versus postseason scouting. And like postseason scouting can tell you a lot about what the deer were doing last year, but so many things could possibly change come this, this season compared to last season. The deer might have shifted a little bit. Um, and, you know, I've seen that personally, you know, firsthand and you had many other people talk about that. Um, so, you know, Warren, when we're talking about in-season scouting and really putting a lot of boots on the ground, you talk about like on a four-day hunt, you spend a couple days just covering the ground to try to find the best, highest odd spots possible. And then you go in and try to hunt them on the last couple of days of the hunt and, you know, have success. I think a question that some people would probably be wondering, and I'm wondering here is, what does it look like when you're going out and you are, again, breaking down these properties? I'm sure you're using paper maps and everything, especially back in the day. What did your routes look like? I mean, did you start always like a creek source or water source and start working bottoms? Did you work like to work ridges? How did that look like when you were in flatland versus when you were in hill country? How did you want to kind of break properties down? Uh, that's, that's an interesting question. You know, uh, I like to kind of zone properties off. In other words, when I when I go to a new place, I want to I want to ride all the roads that exist that you can ride just getting a a feel for the place. 
and then and then I, I'm gonna start walking the creeks out. I want to hit the major creeks and and the uh, funnel creeks and stuff like that, and just you know just walk them creeks out and see what what it has to offer. But I'll grid it off and I'll start breaking it down. It might take a couple of years on a big place and everything because, you know, it, 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 you got to look at everything. And I think about probably 70% of most places of wasteland for us comes to hunting and then you got that 30% where your good stuff's going to be and you just got to, you got to find out what, what areas they prefer to be in and spend your time there and forget about that wasteland. So, that that's an interesting point. Talking about like the like the seventy percent roughly in your perspective of like that wasteland where like is this kind of a, an absence of I guess of, of life or just like the, the the pockets of deer aren't there. We've seen that personally, I think. You know, gone to areas and it's like especially when gun season comes in and there's a lot of pressure on these public land parcels, these deer get pushed into these really tight areas. I mean, even in areas with a lot of deer, they'll get pushed into a small, you know, you know, couple hundred acre little spot. You know, it could be a cutover, it could be a big thicket, pine thicket, something like that, at least where we're at. And if you're in there, you're all over the deer like I was this morning. But then if you go and hunt some nice hardwoods or something, you know, you may not be in them, especially maybe on a morning hunt. Maybe they're kind of pushed back into some of that more thick stuff uh, at, at that time of the season. Um, so that's really interesting. And also something else, Warren, you talked about that I, I really liked and I was pointing at Michael. I thought Michael was going to bring it up maybe is the idea of riding roads. And gridding stuff off based off roads and kind of seeing what you can learn from the roads first before you dive into a parcel. So can you talk to us? I want again, because I want to break, break this down in a lot of detail. When it comes to what you do riding roads, I mean, what kind of sign are you what are you trying to focus on when you're riding roads? I mean, you're looking at access points, hunting pressure, I mean, crossings, tracks, the whole nine yards. I mean, kind of what are you you know, soaking in when you're actually riding roads on public land? I'm I'm looking to find the cutover areas and, and what, what age cutover it is you know if it's three-year-old cutover or 10-year-old cutover something like that on those where they don't have any cutover uh just just get a general look at now you can't judge i got a real good uh hunting friend that i think a whole lot of and he told me one time he said you can't judge a property but from the car window <laughs> or truck window you got to get out and, and get your stick and bust your way through there and see what's back in out further from what you can see from the road and so you can't, but you can get a feel for it. You can, you know, even with a topo map gives you a head start looking at that or looking at a, uh, air a photo of a place, but riding roads just is the next step from that. And then you got to bail off in it, start looking. And I usually square it off with a, get a maybe get a power line or a, a river or a creek. It's a border or a private land or the boundary lines. It's just all, all kind of ways you can do it. Just, you want to, you want to, be able to find a place and be able to come to it from three different directions. You know, know it good enough where you can come in from the north, south, or east, or west, and go to that exact same spot. And uh, and a lot of times, you know, and the GPS helped out tremendously once I got my hands on one of those things. I would find a, a real hot tree, and and I might have come in it, found it from the long way, and using the GPS, I can see it, I can get to it easier and shorter. From another road, possibly, you know, it's just being familiar with the area and learn as much as you can about it. What parts of it has to offer, where the cutover is, how thick it is. Some places, old you might have pine, a pine plantation in there or something where you don't, they don't offer a lot of deer food source right there. So I would scratch it off. But like I say, that that thirty seventy deal there, thirty thirty percent wasteland, a uh, seven percent wasteland and thirty uh, percent attractive 
habitat for them. You know, you want to find all that. It's just knowing your area and, and putting time. It's all about putting time in it and just learn it. That, that's a lot of wisdom there, and I really like that subject because, like, I think all of us here spend a lot of time driving around roads in new places and kind of checking things out. And uh, the whole tip about being able to access it from different angles is huge. Uh, Michael's smiling at me right now because we've been burned on that a lot where we find a good spot and all of a sudden we're like, oh, wait, well, we can't access it with three of the four cardinal directions. Well, I just had a conversation here that just this past week when uh, me and a guy were messaging back and forth and we had hunted the same area. And he was always talking about coming in at this one this one route he was taking into this location in the morning time but uh, it, it seemed to me and just from experience about this spot was that the deer are going to be coming that same path back to the bedding in the morning and I didn't know is that the reason why you want like three different access because of different times of day because you know the deer are going to be uh, you know in different areas based on where they're feeding and where they're bedding or is it mostly just so you don't burn out one certain spot? And if you can bounce around three different spots, you can kind of break up your access uh, in and out. Pretty much so, yeah. And plus the wind condition. You, you know, you never know what the wind condition is going to be. And you might not be able to come in your normal way that you you would plan on coming in. You have to come in from a different way. You can hunt the same tree, you know, with different winds. It just maybe your access to it. It's a little, little awful, awful, whatever, you know. Another question I had was when you're driving those roads, you mentioned specifically cutovers, which we love to talk about on here. Like we're constantly talking about cutovers and thickets. And uh, two questions I have on that. You mentioned, you know, it might be a three-year-old cutover. It might be a 10-year-old cutover. Is there a certain age cutover that you like to look for where you hunt? And also when you're driving roads, how much do tracks crossing roads play a factor for you when you're kind of driving an area and marking spots off? I don't really notice the tracks. You know, usually the ground is too hard on it or, or whatever. Just after a rain, you might might be outstanding for you to see them, but uh, I don't really uh, do that. But I, I mention that cutover a lot of times because of the SMZs behind it on the backside of it. If I find a cutover that backs from the road, maybe a quarter of a mile, half a mile, three-quarter mile, going straight back, toward a creek and have a creek bottom back there. Those loggers, they left that SMZ streamside management zone because they have to. They cut a straight line and all you got all those bends and curves in that creek that's still wooded in there. And that cutover would get up about three years old where you got plenty of that cover they can hide out in there. Well, they don't have to travel uh, to go get a feed tree. when they, They're going to have feed trees in those curves of the SMZ and those deer. They just bed it up just within several yards of it and they, they don't have to travel no way and during the middle of the day instead of getting up and traveling like they do going back to a bedding area in the morning or going to a feeding area at night they just step out at midday and without traveling and they feeding on acorns well if you find that good tree and that smz on the backside that cut over on that creek you can take advantage of it and be there waiting for them when they step out at midday so you mentioned you like that situation kind of a smz on the backside of a cutover close proximity to bedding where they don't have to travel. Uh, how do you go about entering that area to hunt it? Um, do you Are you wrapping around the edge of the cutover, or are you trying to come from a completely different direction? I mean, what does that look I'll, like? I'll, I'll, if they say the cutover runs north and south, south from the road to a creek at, at, at the south, I'll, I'll walk down, say, that east to west side in the woods, the 
existing woods and then hit that SMZ and then slip in there like that. So Warren, again, uh, the whole cutover thing is something that's uh, very exciting for us. Um, I, I might have missed it, but did you did you mention when Andrew asked, uh, you know, what age cutover? If you had a preference, like what's your favorite age when it comes to focusing on a cutover for for quality bedding? No, I didn't. Probably three to five years. You know, if if, if it's not too old, you can maybe find an existing tree or on the edge of it that you can look down in there. You know, I've always considered myself a bow hunter that liked to gun hunt. <laughs> so I, I do gun hunt. I'm not solely just a bow hunter. And I, I would like to get on the edges of those cutovers. It's grow, grow up tall enough to hide a deer, but you get up 15, 20 foot, and you can see him out in there or see him traveling in it one or the other. And that's a good stage of cutover, which would be probably two, three years old. And then, and then as it gets uh, taller, where you can't see them and they just you hunt the feed trees that are along the perimeters of it. The, the cutover aspect is something that I find just, you know, fascinating. Of course, as a Southerner, you know, a lot of the places that we hunt and, and, and some of our, of course, other listeners in the deep South, if you're hunting public land, a decent amount of public land in the Southeast, is, if it's state owned, is going to have some kind of walking going on it. Um, unless you're in an area like maybe like a refuge or even some national forest, they may not cut a whole bunch. But, you know, a lot of areas, though, it seems like that's, a, you know, a huge uh, aspect of, you know, a public land hunter. And this kind of gets back to um, the postseason scouting thing versus in season scouting. One situation I've seen recently in the last ever how many years with a lot of logging kind of happening on public land, if you went and focused on some, maybe a little bit more mature pines or something like that, and you were kind of focusing on some of those areas uh, and found maybe some, some nice bedding thickets and some, you know, 20 year old pines that had been select cut or something, there's a very good chance within a few years, they're going to come in and cut it. And if you're relying on what you knew last season to go in and hunt this year and they came and cut all your property or cut like a decent portion of the public land that you've been focusing on, then you're kind of screwed if you haven't been focusing on other things in season and trying to find where the deer at in season versus kind of what you were dealing with last year. Uh, and I think that's something that I feel is a little bit different. And Warren, you might be able to agree with this. One thing different about being a Southerner dealing with a lot of logging happening on public land is different from what you might find somewhere else where logging maybe just doesn't happen as often, uh, especially on some other pieces of public land, maybe in other parts of the country. Yeah. Well, I hunted one uh, uh, wildlife management area. It's 16,000 acres. And they did a lot of cutting over a couple of year period, but it was years and years ago. It's been 25 years now since they cut all that and grew up. But once they cut it, they never did cut anymore, but they cut a huge expanse. I don't know how many acres it was, but I got a topo map and I got, I actually took the time to find all those cutovers they have and I got it uh, highlighted in orange. Marks a lot over uh, showing just how it lies in there and everything. And it's, it was probably at least a third of it they cut. And But that's been 25, 30 years ago. But So they did make a Huge impact on it back when I first started hunting. It. Just you just learn to live with it. You got <laughs> one thing don't work, you try something else. You know, it's, it's all part of playing the game. Yeah, and see, per, you know, kind of selfishly a little bit, you know, as as a like you said, you know, bow hunter. That's you know, I'll, I'll say this: I'm a bow hunter with a at a gun hunter at heart, though. And uh, you know, I, I love some of those you know two, three, four year old cutovers because I mean, if you're if you're willing to climb and get a pretty good elevation, you can have some awesome hunting in those areas and those thickets where you know when you're on the ground, I mean, everything's over your head high, but you get 25, 30 foot up a tree or higher, it's it's amazing what you can kind of see down in some stuff. But I'll say this. Uh, you know, cutovers and logging is something that I think is very intimidating for a lot of people, especially if it's somebody I feel like 
kind of new or, or green into hunting in areas with a lot of logging, it, it's extremely overwhelming. I think when they're like, oh, I'm focused on this, you know, 500 acre parcel uh, or like piece in this, you know, bigger piece of public land, they're focused on this one little area. And then they come through and they log part of it. And you're like, oh crap, you know, I got to do something different now. Instead of looking at the more positive outlook on it, like, hey, they cut it great. Well, that's going to be an awesome place to run trail cameras this coming summer because there's going to have some awesome growth, which, you know, for antler growth and everything, deer coming in there, feeding on that browse and also areas to kind of key in on a little bit later on in the years. Um, but Warren, I want to kind of just, kind of take a segue a little bit back to that question I had earlier, which is, again, how did you, how do you go about, or how did you go about breaking down both public land parcels, flat land and hill country and how you would approach everything? And you talked about riding roads and you wanted to kind of, you know, kind of walk everything off in blocks, but can you talk a little bit more about the progression? Like say, you know, you start out, you're riding roads. Once you ride roads, how do you then decide, okay, I'm going to start walking through these areas. How do you start planning a route of how you're going out there and, and trying to look for the sign you're trying to focus on based off the area and the topographical features and everything else that you're trying to key in on. Well, in the hill country, you know, I like to walk the ridges and the bottoms, both. So that's, that takes some planning doing that. You take off on a ridge and you run down and maybe drop down in the bottom and come back on it and then go up on the other one and, and crisscross and just, you know, looking for potential places to, to hunt and what sign you can find to set up on. But uh, it's it's different. Uh, I don't like to hunt hills that much because of the wind conditions and everything. That wind is real squirrely, and uh, it's it's cost me some some good opportunities that, on deer that I wasn't able to shoot at that I actually saw, and 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 the the, the wind swirled and, and messed up messed me up before I could get a shot and everything. So I I like those creeks. I spend a lot of time on creeks, walking out them hardwood bottoms and stuff. A lot of people say, well, you know, they're wide open and everything. You're not going to see any deer. Well, that, that's not true. You're going to see deer at different times and everything. And uh, I've killed a lot of deer in open woods. I, I, I killed deer with a bow off of a power line and a little food pot in Alabama. I was over there hunting. This has been 83 or something, 1983. I went up there and, and uh, hunted a cannabis wildlife management area in Alabama and they had a uh, little power lines. I'm not not big high lines or nothing, like just little bitty power lines that, that they had cut clean and they had a few plots on them and everything and they didn't have any trees the pines were real short on both sides of it, just nothing to climb in I don't like to ground hunt at all I, I feel like I lose the advantage when I'm hunting off the ground for deer and uh, I climbed one of those little old telephone poles and it wasn't even a standard size telephone it was a little old bitty thing and my buddy said, man, you can't kill a deer on that thing. He said, they're going to see you. And I said, well, maybe they'll think I'm a transformer. <laughs> but anyway, I climbed on it, and I killed a couple of deer like that, just just taking advantage of, of what I could to climb to get elevated and, and uh, where well, I knew the deer were coming to, even though it wasn't a, a, a standard way or accepted way to hunt. And uh, You just got to take advantage of any kind of opportunity you find like that. But... My main, I like them hardwood bottoms and flatland, everything like that. I just, it's easy. The sign shows up better. You know, they got like, creeks on them. The deer like to parallel creeks. Bucks like to parallel creeks. Look, checking crossings, uh, scent checking for, for those that was ready to, to breed and everything. It's just, it just, it seems like they get more deer than hardwood bottoms on the creeks. 
So it seems like, again, you're talking about hill country working both the, the ridges and then also the bottoms and then also flatlands kind of focus around the creeks. So it seems like water is a huge or drainages are a huge aspect of how you go about breaking down a property. Um, and of course, you know, at least in, in timber areas where, you know, they're, when I say timber, I'm talking about where logging is taking place, you know, your creeks and those SMZs are the only place you're going to most of the time have, you know, hardwoods and your oaks are going to be at, uh, you know, very rarely we find around here, unless it's on a really steep slope close to the top of a ridge, ever find a lot of, uh, you know, oaks up on top of a ridge or, or even upper or higher in elevation. So a lot of times they're down low. Uh, but again, walking bottoms, walking some of the ridges, but really kind of staying low, covering a lot of ground. Now, a question I've got to ask this, and I, I mean, you kind of touched on it, but you know, we ha- we've interviewed hundreds of very successful hunters in the Southeast hunting public land, and you know, everybody has their own different takes on different things. And a lot of the guys that we talk to talk a lot about the importance for them of finding that thick security cover to then hunt around or hunt inside of. Uh, sometimes that's going to be a pine thicket. Sometimes it might be a privet thicket. Sometimes it could be, uh, I mean, just a tornado path. I mean, there's different things that, you know, this had a thicker security cover that's going to be thicker than everything else around there. But when it comes to you, that doesn't seem like as much of a factor, at least from what you're talking about for what you're wanting to set up on. I guess, have you not ever had like, well, I'm not going to say you're never worried because you've been doing this forever. You've been doing this longer than I've ever been alive, that I've been alive. You're coming in from this, not necessarily worrying about, it doesn't sound like of being right on top of that thick security cover and focusing, maybe getting back off that a little bit and letting those deer come to you. Is that correct? On the feed trees, but if I'm out in travel areas that I know of, I get right up in there with them. You know, I, I set up to gun hunt much like I do bow hunting. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm not real confident shooting a rifle long distance and everything. In fact, I've messed up on deer passing on them at 80 yards, trying to shoot them at 25 <laughs> with a rifle. <laughs> like I say, I'm bow hunted hard, but I like to hunt with a gun too. But I still set up just like I'm bow hunting. Uh, it's just just the way I do. But sure, I, I hunt some thick areas. In fact, uh, I got a, a private place. I've been hunting for about eight, nine years now. I got the whole place myself. It's not very big and everything. And it was great, man. I, I, I killed deer on it every year and just blessed to have the opportunity to hunt it. And then three years ago, they started cutting it. And the, the, the owner of it, he, he cut all his pines one year, and then next year he cut the majority of his, his hardwood. And you would think that would make it a lot better for me, give the deer more food source and everything. But they cut it so severe that it's, it's not hunter-friendly anymore. Plus the next year, the third year, the neighbor behind him has to go through his property, which they don't use the property at all. They live out of state, but he's kind of the caretaker over. Well, it's a, it's a lot bigger. It's probably four, four or five times bigger than the, the property that he owns. That he's letting me hunt. Anyway, they cut that real, real hard. And now the whole place is grown up. It's like a big briar patch. You can't even navigate. It's not hunter friendly. The only place I can set up and hunt is on the roads. You know, which I don't, that's not conducive to bow hunting. And if I shoot a deer with my bow and everything, he can run out there 50 yards and take a bulldozer to get out there to him. The briars are head high and just massive thick where they cut it so hard. And it just, it just ruined it for me. Now, he thinks there's going to be a lot of deer on it, but there's not a lot of deer on it. Now, I've been hunting it this year a few times I've hunted. And uh, it just, you don't, you don't see the sign there. You can't. The only place you can see sign is on the road. So, they can't cut a place too hard like that, and that's what's happening in my case. But sure, I'm going to take advantage and, and hunt a 
thick areas, and that's what I did before he cut it. They had, they had some ditches and creeks on there. It was thick, and those, I knew after hunting eight years, I knew exactly how those deer traveled and the way they ran along it. And, and I killed deer on it every year. It's just, you know, just knew where to hunt. And I wasn't hunting feed trees, and I wasn't hunting funnels and nothing. It was little travel areas. I knew how they traveled. Houndstooth Game Calls is your home for turkey calls this spring. Go check them out. They got all the classic turkey calls. You know, they got the pot calls and the box calls and the mouth calls. But they also got a couple really interesting calls. One of them is called the the success call. And you just need to go look it up. It's very, it's like a box call that you can work with one hand. It's really, really cool. Sounds incredible. They also got the Spur Master, which is another very unique call that you can get some really unique, clean tones out of. They're going to help you out this turkey season. Use the promo code SOP24 to get 15% off of your order at Houndstooth Game Calls. That's SOP24. Use it at checkout. It helps the podcast. Warren, one thing I've got to ask, um, and we're going we're diving into some of these other topics uh, in just a second, but can you give a little piece of advice to listeners out there that you know have a, a, a standard Monday through Friday, 9 to 5 job, they can only hunt weekends, maybe they can only hunt a Saturday, maybe like part of a Sunday or something like that. When it comes to somebody with that kind of schedule where they just can't put three, four, or five days a week potentially in the woods scouting unless they're going to go out you know, early in the morning uh, before work, if they could do that, if they live close enough to their public land, um, which is hard to do after you know time change, what is your advice for those people when it comes to in-season scouting uh, and having that approach on a, on a very limited schedule? Well, that's tough. That's a tough situation, and I feel for them. You know, I always quit my job every year and hunted. I didn't. I didn't work during the hunting season majority of the times, but uh, that's a limited amount of time. You know, a couple of days a week. It's really, really tough to be consistent. You, you got to almost plan on luck more than anything else. You just don't have time to do it all. It's hard to to scout to find the best places to hunt when you don't you don't have the time to spend all that time scouting when you need to be in a tree hunting. So maybe after a, hunting a place for a year or two. And, and scouting during the summertime or during the postseason, getting familiar with the place. That's probably the best thing is during the postseason, going there and, and spend a lot of time looking and seeing where the deer had, had done, what they had done, and finally get you some travel areas that you could hunt during the season, maybe. you know. But it's hard to answer that thing, Jake. It's, it's, that's really tough. I feel for them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That, that was what Michael and old Andrew – gave me hell about the last two years or plus, you know, which finally was able to quit my job, which was awesome and now doing this, but yeah, that was terrible. It's like, man, maybe get, maybe get one day a week to go hunt. I don't know. Cause sometimes I had to work on Saturdays. Like one day a month. Yeah. That's it. That too. Sometimes. Absolutely. Um, which is, it's, it's like, it's like, man, you, 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 run, you help do a hunt podcast. You only hunt one day a month. I'm like, sometimes man, back in the, like, dude, work was crazy. Work back was crazy. in the day, two weeks ago. I know. Yeah, absolutely. Back in the day, son. Um, Warren, and so one thing you touched on was uh, travel cor- travel areas and corridors. And I, you mentioned this uh, topic earlier, which was the uh, topic of flow areas. Um, can, first off, can you give a description on what you would call a flow area? Yeah, it's just, it's actually the, the way I found several different flow areas that pr- proved successful year after year for a long time was, was observation stands, you know. Sometimes you just don't find anything you feel confident about hunting and other things. That's when you go to a new area that you hadn't been before and get where you can see somewhat of a, a distance and, and have a good observation set and see where deer are traveling. 
And if you see where they're traveling, maybe you can move a little closer and set up on them to kill. But once you find it, and like I said, those deer, when they travel a, a flow area, they, they, it's not a trail, and it's it's not a thicket or nothing. It's just regular property that they going from point A to point B, and they, they have learned how to hide their self going through there as much as possible. They, they use a change in elevation to, to be hidden. They use a little bit thicker. It might, be, it might look wide open, but there's it's some places in there they can navigate through those trees and everything and remain a lot more hidden than if they just walk through there anywhere. And they find these places. It, it hides them, and they use it year after year after year. But the best way to find them is just a plain old climb and hope I see some. And then if you do, and it, you don't want to hunt the same place every day anyway. You want to hunt different places, whether you got something to hunt or, or you don't have something to hunt. You want to keep moving. I'll tell you a little story about that. I had a, a guy I'd met at a 3D shoot. He was a real likable guy, and he, he, he was interested in the way I hunted and everything. And he had a club in Mississippi he was hunting in. It was like, I think it was 22, 25 acres, something like that. And he'd, he'd hunted the year before, and he'd kill one deer. And he he asked me, he said, would you come look at my property and 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 tell me if you can give me some clues on how, how to hunt it better or whatever. And so I like looking at new places and things. So I, I met him up there and we, we took me around. And he said, before we look at the rest of the place, I'm going to show you where I hunted. We had four stands up. And, and he showed me each four of the stands. And I said, I said, where else did you hunt? And he said, that's it. He said, I'd hunt one one time, a couple of days. And Maybe hunt one of the other one. He said, that's all I hunted, those four different places. I told him, I said, you didn't get your money's worth out of this lease. I said, you got 22, 2,500 acres, and you hunted four places you couldn't see more than 30, 40 yards. I said, you don't know what's going on here. And he said, well, what I do? And, and I said, sell those stands you get. You get one light, very portable stand with a, with a quick and easy climbing method. And every time you hunt, hunt a different place. I don't care if you see hunt one place, you see 10 deer. This first year, hunt a different place every time. Well, he he took my word for it. He got sold him stands. He got him a little lock on stand, and I think he got some spurs. Learned how to use them. And the next year, it was totally different. He killed eight. He tagged out. He killed eight deer the next year, hunting the way I told him to do it. And but you just got to you got to you got to look around. You got to see what's out there and what's used in those places as much as you can. But that comes in from hunting a lot as much as you can, and having a good portable system. And make it some observation hunts when you don't have anything to hunt. Just climb up there and see what happens. And then maybe you can move in on one of those flow areas. That's not, This is a subject I've really been wanting to talk about since we had that discussion before we started the recording. You mentioned the flow area idea and, and how the deer uh, take advantage of their habitat in order to move around and kind of stay undetected. Um, so one of the questions... Well, go ahead. That was a very good way to say it right there. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I mean, one of the, that's really intriguing to me because um, it's like, like right now I've got some cameras out and some hardwood bottoms and places and, and I'll get pictures of bucks. Um, but it's like, how are they getting there? How are they moving throughout the land without getting shot? I mean, it's gun season right now. We've had a couple gun hunts. And so I guess one of my questions is when it comes to these flow areas, one of the first questions I have is this um, all deer you see really taking advantage of these uh, kind of overlooked spots where they can stay hidden, or is it more so bucks than does that do it? I think it's just deer. Either, either sex is going to do it. They they know how to they know how to stay hidden. You know what I mean? How to protect yourself, and they they they're concerned with their well being, especially if they have some hunting pressure on them, and they're going to find 
safer ways for them to travel from point A to point B, and they're going to use it until something happens to change it from being what it is, offering them that safety. You can see them somewhere in there. You'll see them, and then they'll disappear. So where'd they go? And then you'll see them again. Well, they're taking advantage of those little places. They know how to travel through them. So when it comes to so so all deer do it. Um, do bucks and does typically use the same routes? I mean, are you seeing them on the same trails or moving through the same spots in the cover, or are bucks kind of hanging off of the does and, and kind of keeping their distance and doing their own thing? Yeah, your mature bucks, they're not going to travel with them does. They're, they're going to stay away from them during the major part of the season until the rut time, you know what I mean? All during the year, they don't fool with them. Now, your younger bucks will hang with them, spikes and the little immature bucks, they will, but... uh. Yeah. Is there anything that that you maybe use to key in on, like any, like maybe you see an area where some deer are moving through, and and you kind of look around. Is there anything that might indicate, without actually seeing him, uh, that hey, a mature buck might be using this particular route to navigate through this area? If it's real wet, you can see the sign. You know the tracks it making, everything bogging and stuff like that. But when the woods are dry and everything, you're not going to see any sign. I mean, it's 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 not like a trail. It's just a general travel area. It's a flow area where they just flow at the. Just think of smoke in the wind, and it kind of just goes off to the left, and then it go back to the right, and then a little more to the right, and it just shifts and flows through the woods. That's what those deer did. They're flowing through there, staying hidden as possible. So all deer do it. You know, it's just the deer's nature to stay as hidden as possible. Yeah, it's like some kind. Of, sometimes you find those spots where there's like kind of general deer sign around like the woods just look a little different it's not like a beat down trail but you're like i i can tell that deer are are moving through this general swath of woods and that's and that's actually what i dealt with today uh in the spot that we hunted um and you could call it a flow area in these you know in these um it's a it's an older cutover i would call it a cutover but some listeners are like or michael michael what would you call it <laughs> it's a uh it's a pine thicket that's grown up it's like what it's eight pine- Eight, ten eight year, years old, yeah, ten eight, years eight, old, eight ten year old pines, and it's a there's a it's a t- on a on a ridge, and they they come around it, and there's no there's trails everywhere. There's not like one individual trail, and it's like they just come through all these pines. There's like a you know a 60, 80 yard stretch uh, on the side of this ridge that they'll that they'll come down, and it's like there's no one defined point that they're going to come through. Um, and I guess you could call it as a flow area. Like there's not a defined trail they're coming down. There's trails everywhere, and they're just kind of filtering through these pines as they go back to bed in this in this larger area. Um, so that that might be a, a way to kind of describe it as well. Uh, I mean, would you agree with that, Warren? Or is it even like sure. maybe? Oh, I do agree with it. You know, they're just going from point A to point B, staying as hidden as possible through thickness and, and uh, elevation change. You know, you got little ditches and stuff, a little bit lower than the rest of the woods, and they they just they just flow. That's, that's why I call it a flow area. It's just like it floats smoke flowing through there. So with, with the flow the flow areas, is that something that you can also key in on based off uh, topographical features potentially? Like um, something that we've talked about on the podcast is these large landscape saddles. And it is, you could call it a saddle on a ridge, but they're extremely wide. It's, it's very gentle. It's nothing crazy as in like a, you know, standard saddle you may find in, in a little more kind of steeper topography, but it's got this, it's almost like a flow area. Like Andrew, where you shot your buck uh, or shot two of your bucks last year. Yeah. You could call that saddle that it's a huge, I mean, it's a, it's a huge saddle. Yeah. I mean, three, four, 300 yards wide. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's like not a, just a, that little tight 
pinch point that you think about when people describe saddles. Yeah, it's it's much larger, and it's like again that flow area where they're kind of just easing their way through that uh, compared to you know like a, a real tight funnel. So, you know, I, I killed some deer on a on a wide funnel uh, flow area like that years ago back in the nineties, and uh, what it was, it was a, a river. It was a pretty good sized river, and and then north of it, about uh, probably 250 yards, maybe was a was a slough. It was like a ditch slough that, that parallel with the river, and then made a cut back. And these deer were traveling between the, that slough, creek, ditch thing, and and the river. And what what the, what the, what I pinpointed the moving was they had a red oak tree that was just starting to drop acorns. And I had a uh, I had some deer come in, and I wound up shooting a real nice eight point that evening. Hit, Actually, the deer laid down. It was it was him and a, and a bigger deer, a, a real nice buck. And they laid down, and and the big buck laid down, faced me at 25 yards, and then you know at, at at 20 yards. And where they come into that feed tree, and it wasn't dark yet, and they just laid down. And the other one was a little bit further. And I I, was, I stood there. I had to stand up there for about over an hour just waiting for him to get up. I couldn't shoot him laying down. And then that one one stood up, the big one stood up. He didn't like something. And the other one stood up with him. And the big one turned and walked back in some cane and laid back down. But when he did that, the one I killed, he laid back down. This time he was broadside. And uh, no, he, I take it back. He was quartering a little bit to me, showing his left side, laying down. And he kept looking back at that other buck, which was about six, seven yards behind him in that cane thicket. And it's getting darker and darker. And I said, I'm going to have to try to kill this thing. So the next time he turned his head and looked back, it opened his shoulder up where I thought I could get air in there. And I took the shot. And I hit him laying down. He jumped up and he ran about 80 yards and found him. But that was a that was a big, wide flow area where they just traveled through there. And like I say, it was probably 200, maybe 200. It's hard to remember. 150, 200 yards wide between the river and that ditch and that, and that's, and that red oak was able to pinpoint their movement coming to give me a focal point to set up on. And I was setting up as much as the flow area that I knew was going through there as I was the red oak because it really wasn't ready yet. It was just coming in. Warren, one question I've, I've always had when it came to, you know, keying in on, on some of these features, especially in these areas where you're in and around some kind of security cover, is is there anything that you can tell based off sign that you're finding with potentially this, that this buck, if you're finding like some big tracks or whatever, potentially that you know this buck is coming in in daylight. I mean, because it seems like it's a 50-50 chance most times. But is there anything that you've keyed in on and learned that potentially there's a higher chance that this you know these deer are gonna be coming in during daylight compared to you know after dark? No, I can't say as I do. I never figured that out. I mean, I've, I've hunted trees. And I, I would have bet my house that they were gonna come in. I mean, it had everything it took to be a primary feed tree, and and all the sign was there and everything, and just know I was going to get a shot. I mean, just just know it and never see a deer. You know, <laughs> I don't know what makes them come in one day and not come in the next day or that morning or that evening or the middle of the day. I've killed them. It's not an hour in a day I hadn't bow killed a deer from daylight to dark. So, you know, I, it's not because I'm not hunting them and everything, but... Sometimes they just don't show up. Maybe the wind got wrong and they discovered you before they got inside, or, or what? Just I, I don't know how to explain it, but it definitely happens. So Warren, one thing you mentioned uh, just a little while ago, we were talking about kind of I want to say m- making your own luck, as in uh, you you climbed a uh, a power pole, uh, telephone pole, small telephone pole on a little green field on some public land in Alabama, and uh, and killed you some deer over there. 
Uh, not saying, you know, guys go out there and do that. Would not recommend that at all. But, hey, you got to do what you got to do uh, to kill some deer. But, Warren, one thing I've seen you do, uh, and you, well, I say I saw you make a post about this, was some swamp or marsh, and I think it might have been in Louisiana, where you took a post hole digger in there and actually brought in, uh, looked like some kind of te- little telephone pole or something in there, and you actually put it out there in the swamp and kind of brushed it in with some willows and, and killed a killed a, a buck on there. Um, do you know the, Do you know the hunt I'm talking about right now? No, exactly. It's a little bit different what you're saying. Uh, it was on a sandbar and curve in the Mississippi River. Mm. Yeah, it was a Louisiana hunt on private land at the time. That that's now a National Wildlife Refuge where I did that. This was back in the '70s, and uh, I I was doing checking oak trees it was early part of the season i i, I could look in my book but it'd take time to look it up and tell you what the date was on it but i had i wouldn't find any acorns to hunt i didn't walk myself to death and no find any acorns at all and i went out on a sandbar huge sandbar and it's got little willows and and uh and uh, uh willow trees and cottonwood trees out there on that sandbar but nothing climb big enough to climb on it's just saplings and stuff and they had so many tracks on that big sandbar out there. It was unbelievable. I said, well, this is where all the deer's at. I don't know if they're getting away from mosquitoes out there or what the deal was, but the deer was definitely out there. So I didn't have anything to climb. And like I say, I'm not a confident ground hunter at all for deer. I, I give up my advantage when I hunt from the ground. So I went and cut a cottonwood tree. I took my bronco. I had a 74 bronco, and I went and took my bronco and, Got an axe and I cut a cottonwood tree down. About to cut the top out of it, made it 25 foot long, and I hooked it on my bronco and I drug it out on the road and back around on that sandbar in the area I wanted to put it. And I went back to the camp. I was hunting a private club then, and I got found an old broken shovel and I went back and I got to digging a hole for that pole to set it up where I thought it'd be a good chance. Of course, it was all sandbar out there, just willows and cottonwoods you know one place was as good as another just tracks were everywhere you couldn't spit on the sandbar without spitting on a deer track and uh so i, I dug that hole had to dig down about waist deep and of course with it caving in the thing it was actually about the hole was about five foot in diameter and i got i hit hard clay at five foot down you know about waist deep, not five foot waist deep down i hit hard clay and uh i got that i had a had a friend of mine who was up there and i got him to help me what we do, we took the base of that cottonwood tree, which was about the size of a telephone pole. We put it at the base of that hole, and I had a rack on my Bronco, and we picked the little end up and set it up on my rack. And he guided the pole, and I backed my Bronco up and stood the pole up and dropped down the hole. And then we started putting some sand in it, backfilling, and I had a tarp in my Bronco, and I went out there and got some gravel and put it in my tarp, coming back, and I mixed the sand and gravel backpack and, you know, uh, backfill in the hole and then I took a stand I climbed up over my spurs and, and I hung a stand up there my hunting buddy he said man he said you're gonna look naked up there on that pole they're gonna see you and he, so he reached over and he cut a, a willow limb and I had some rope my tied on the top of that, that cottonwood pole and I hunted that evening and killed a deer killed a little spike out of it so now, yeah, it's always always did whatever it takes to kill people say well, what you gonna do to kill and I said, I'm gonna do whatever it takes. I'm gonna figure it out. You know that was my 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 saying, I guess. And it went from whatever it takes to it takes all I got to I don't got what it takes. <laughs> now I'm I'm kind of afraid of the answer to this, but how long were you able to hunt out of that tree? Like how long was it still standing? Like with it being on the sandbar, I'm kind of scared of the answer. But um, were you? I, able I only to- hunted out of 
two times. The first time I killed on it, the second time I didn't. And by the time the acorns were back in the in the hardwoods, and I went back to hunt my acorns. No oh, man. But I, they they had a guy coming coming to camp. He didn't. It was my first year in that camp. He didn't really know me. A couple of the guys knew me and everything. He come in there raving about it. he'd found a. A telephone pole out on that sandbar out there. You want to know what? He said, "Anybody know anything about that that pole out there in that sandbar?" And they all pointed at me, the ones that knew about it and everything. I said, "Yes, me. So, <laughs> Hunt it if you want. I'm done with it." Warren, it's kind of funny. You, uh, it's. I'm glad we ever bring this story up because uh, on our family farm uh, in, in Central Alabama, there's a uh, specific spot out there that. Um, is an excellent ambush point. And there used to be this big sear that we had a, uh, a little lock on in. And it was an excellent uh, bow spot ambush point uh, next to Greenfield. It was on this uh, transition edge, this hard edge, and uh, always was a great spot. Well, that cedar died. So my uncle actually got a telephone pole and he dug, he had a, uh, uh, was a auger bit or auger on his uh, backhoe. And he augered it down, I think it was like six, seven, eight feet put that uh that pole in there and he's actually killed three deer out of it so far this year done the exact same thing and it's he's got tucked up kind of next to that dead cedar but he you know put some straps on it and put some uh, like big like uh, green cedar branches hanging off of it and right, yeah. it, and it's cool dude I'm, i mean he sent me some photos he's like check this out and he was showing me some of the bucks he's killed like two he's killed already i think two bucks out of it this year in a doe and uh again it's like dude they don't they don't even know what's going on he's like you know because the last couple of years he hadn't been able to hunt it because that dead cedar so uh yeah you gotta you gotta make your own luck sometimes so that's where we're he, trying to get at he's a member of the whatever it takes club too <laughs> yeah yep oh yeah absolutely um and, and that's something i think that should be talked about a little bit more is you know looking at maybe being a little bit more unconventional like sometimes to kill a deer you just got to think outside the box and we talk about that sometimes tactic wise like you know sometimes they're not always a mile from the truck sometimes you can kill bucks real close to the truck or just deer real close to the truck and access points uh but sometimes you know you gotta get creative in some of these areas where you just maybe you need to get elevated and you can't really hunt on the ground uh and i could think about this like in Maybe you're hunting an area, maybe some CRP or something like that, or some kind of overgrown, you know, pasture, overgrown, you know, uh, you know, river bottom with cane. Maybe you need to get six, eight feet up, and there, it's, you know, it's gonna be hard to find a tree to get that high up and to get some kind of elevation. Uh, and you kind of think outside the box, especially. And I'll say this: where it's legal, you know, don't we go and digging, you know, holes and on public land and throwing, uh, you know, poles down in it because uh, probably not legal where you're at. But uh, if you get some right. private land, you gotta do what you gotta do sometimes. I had another uh, whatever it takes deal too. I was hunting on a, on the, along the Mississippi River. It was one of our boundary lines years ago. It was back in the seventies and everything. And and I, I found where it was like a weeds and along the river there is weeds and no trees and nothing just. Just, just a bunch of junk, you know, but deer was in there. They were traveling there a lot. I had a lot of sign and everything, and I had to figure out a way to hunt it. So I went in there one evening. I was going to hunt it, do whatever it took to hunt it, and I brought my spurs and my homemade lock-on stand, and I found three uh, saplings. There was, was like, I don't know if it was cottonwood or willow. It's kind of in a trashy area and everything, but they were they were probably, I don't know, three or four inches in diameter each, and I, they were growing close together, so I, I grabbed those three trees and, and pulled them together with both hands, kind of mashed them together, and I took a chain. I, my lock-on back end had a chain. I took that chain and took about four wraps around those trees, just as high as I could reach on that on that, uh, on that stand, on that tree, just hanging as high as I could reach, and I, I wrapped it around, and, and, I, and then I 
got my spurs and I care very carefully. I put my gas in, took about three steps up, and then got up on the stand. I my, my feet was about maybe six foot off the ground, and uh, and I was sitting, leaning forward. The the, the weight on that being that stand, everything pulled those little saplings over, and I was leaning very uncomfortable sitting there, just facing down toward the ground, everything. But anyway. I made it work, and I actually killed a uh, doe that evening on it. I had several of them come in, and and I uh, got to shoot at one of them and killed it. Didn't find it that night. Had to find it the next day. When they run off the the doe, I lost. I got them mixed up with another deer when they crisscrossing like a covey, getting out of there. And I, I got off the one I shot and got on another. And so I was running those bearings out looking for. Them. I actually got my bronco and got a hunting partner to get up on the Bronco. He sat right on top of me on the rack with his feet down. I was looking through his feet, driving, bush hogging all that, all those weeds down, looking for that deer, and he had a spotlight up there shining. We looked at 10 o'clock at night and didn't find it, but we was we were searching on the wrong compass barrier and went back the next day, and and I, I, I knew something wasn't right. I knew I had to kill that deer, and so I took the, the original compass bearing. I saw it running off and where I got it switched off, and I, we found her out there. She went about 150 yards or something like that. But I, my, I was, my feet was on that stand. And, of course, I had to shoot sitting down and everything. But I was only, platform was about six foot off the ground. So you just got to do whatever it takes sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. We had a, a gentleman that we've interviewed back in the past uh, before he passed away, Mr. Glenn Solomon uh, from South Georgia. And uh, Glenn talked about uh, down in South Georgia on a Palmetto flat. It might have, actually might not have been it might have, it some kind of open area. It was like gra- maybe like a grassy area, but anyways, just some small little pine trees that he was able to ratchet strap together and get his climber on them. Where they're lo- uh, longleaf pines that didn't have um, you know limbs on them very high, you know they were you know probably ten feet up and the limbs were so able to get a climber strap uh, a ratchet strap three of them together and then put his you know summit climber on it and climb up them. Uh, to get up, you know, elevated, kind of look down to all that stuff. I think on a muzzleloader hunt, and uh, I think he killed a deer doing that. So, yeah, you, you got to make your own luck. And I think he talked about doing the same thing, maybe about doing some kind of like a very similar, yeah, very very similar postal or doing some kind of pole setup or something like that. Again, making your own setup because he, he, I think, you know, he kind of agreed too. You know, he'd hunt off the ground some, but definitely try and get elevated and get the best advantage possible because he's hunting. He liked hunting really thick stuff during the rut and, and really kind of catching bucks, kind of you know coming out of a, a bedding area. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I thought that was fantastic. Uh, w- one other thing I just want to touch on with you, Warren, is uh, you know I think some guys are you know potentially wondering um, rut hunting and your approach to rut. Uh, one thing that you had mentioned to us earlier before we started recording is. It, it seems, to, from what you explained to us, it, your style really doesn't change. Period. No matter the point of the season, you still kind of do your same thing. But can you just, you know, kind of hash out, you know, uh, your approach to the rut compared to, uh, you know, any other time of the season? Yeah, you know, I, I don't do anything special. I hunt pretty much the same way. I, I hunt for for sign, and, and most of the sign made is by does on feeding areas and everything like that. So the bucks are. Looking for the does, so I figured if if I keep seeing does and everything, I got a better chance of hunting bucks. I guess the main thing, absolutely different from what I normally hunt, is I hunt more travel areas during this time of the year, and and uh, and that's and that's little thicker areas where they I know they travel, and uh, because they're going to be traveling more, actually traveling more, but looking for the does, but. Uh, it's not that much different. I hunt a little thicker areas than I do. A lot of my feet sources are kind of open. I was open, 
And uh, but I had a guy that did an article on the Louisiana Sportsman magazine a few years ago, and he was wanting me to talk about how I hunted during the rut. I told him, I said, you're going to be disappointed. I said, I hunt pretty much the same way. I said, I'm not like all those magazines you read about about uh, the scrapes and all this, that, and other. I said, I don't really do all that. I said, you know, I, I never kill many deer just hunting a scrape like that. I said, I'd rather hunt a rub line than I would a scrape. So they'd show them where they'd like to travel right there with those rubs and stuff, those lines of rubs. But uh, I really don't do that much different, you know. Try to hunt a little more, spend more time in the woods during that time of the year when that, when the rut's fixing to start. You know, of course, that's a no-brainer there. Anybody knows once they do, they don't do this very long, and when they do it, you got to be in the woods to take advantage of it. So everything's pretty simple. I like to keep things simple. Awesome. Well, Warren, uh, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, you know, I was, I'm glad we were able to kind of hash out some of these conversations and these different topics, uh, and get your perspective on it. Again, it's something that I've been wanting to kind of talk about for a while now, uh, because one thing I thoroughly enjoy about this podcast is interviewing a bunch of successful people, you know, across the country, but a lot of them throughout the Southeast of what works for different guys. And some guys are very similar. Some people are very different, but everybody's successful and has confidence in their style of hunting. And that's, I think the big takeaway with all of our guests, but especially you Warren is you have your system, you're extremely successful with it. And you've kind of had the years of experience to kind of fine tune how you go about approaching and, and by far, you know, understanding in your area, wherever you're going to be hunting, where that destination food source is going to be, finding that hot sign and making sure that, you know, it's hot enough that you can't walk away from it. And I think that's some really big takeaways from this episode when it comes to, you know, maybe a different outlook on some of these different spots. You know, we talk so much about thick cover and, and almost focus more on security cover than actual, uh, you know, actual, um, you know, destination food sources. Uh, so I think this is kind of a refreshing, uh, I guess, eye opening, um, uh, topic uh, for this podcast and for all of the listeners. Yeah. Well, I appreciate y'all having me on. I enjoy talking with y'all. I learn on every one of these things I do. I learn stuff too, so uh, I appreciate it. Awesome. All right, Warren. Well, uh, thank you again, and I uh, hope you have a, a, a good rest of your season. I know we probably got a little bit longer season, uh, kind of you know down here in the southeast. Uh, so hopefully, you got a couple more months ahead of you to maybe get out there and uh, have a little more success and add a couple more stories to the journal book. <laughs> okay, I will do it. Y'all be safe and have a good rest of the season, too. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman. And thank you to Blackberry Smoke for the music for the podcast. Also, to follow along with us, make sure you check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And if you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the Southern Outdoorsman. Until next time, y'all stay Southern.
All right, guys, we're starting to get kind of close to summer here. And you know what my favorite part about summer is? The Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard us talk about it a lot last year, and we actually got to meet a lot of you guys at that expo. Well, we're excited to announce we're going to be there again. This time it's going to be in Dalton, Georgia, June 28th through June 30th. We are going to be there all three days. We're going to have a bunch of past podcast guests there. We're going to have a booth where you can come by and grab some merchandise. And I'm sure we're going to be recording all kinds of podcasts there. If you're unfamiliar, the Mobile Hunters Expo is the place you need to be if you are the kind of hunter that listens to this podcast this show was literally made for you it is an excellent group of people that are going to be there a lot of whitetail killers from around the southeast are going to be there you're going to get to talk to them shake their hand learn from them in person make some connections and guys we get a lot of questions about uh, which saddle should i get which tree stand should i get what about this piece of gear what about that piece of gear how do I meet other hunters who want to hunt the same way that I do? You know, finding a good hunting buddy. The Mobile Hunters Expo is a place for all of that. So you guys don't miss it. June 28th through the 30th, Dalton, Georgia. We'll see you there.